The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. For the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the Word. Have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord Father, we do thank you for this opportunity as a body of believers to gather together to fellowship around the teaching of your word. Father, we thank you that we live in a nation that is free. We live in a nation where we have the freedom to study your word, to teach it. We have the freedom to pursue the spiritual life. Father, these freedoms are being threatened both from enemies outside of this country and enemies within this country. We pray that you would continue to give our leaders wisdom that you would continue to protect and shelter this country, keep us from harm, that we might continue to fulfill that task which you have set before us, that the believers in this nation and the churches in this nation would continue to be able to set, send out missionaries to take the gospel throughout the world, and that we might continue as a nation to support Israel, even though they are an unregenerate nation and apostate at this time. We know that your promise is that those who bless Israel will also be blessed, and that is not a promise related to their spiritual condition. Father, we pray that you would enable us as we study your word today to have a level of objectivity that we need under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, to see how these things apply. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to start 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is one of those Oh, fun and interesting chapters that gets everybody's attention because uh, it deals with many of those issues that uh, hit most of us right uh, where we're living, and that is the issues related to uh, marriage and sex. And sex always brings a good crowd. So uh, for the next several weeks, we'll be studying love, sex, marriage, and divorce. No, this isn't the Oprah Winfrey show. And this morning, those who aren't here will really miss out because this is the title for this morning's message is Sex for the Glory of God. So that ought to get everybody's attention. This is uh, one of the few chapters in the Scripture that gives some detailed uh, analysis on some important principles related to uh, love, sex, romance, uh, marriage, and divorce. And what I haven't taken the time since I've been pastor of this church to do an extended study on the doctrine of love, sex, and marriage, and it's time that we do so. So I'm going to follow the procedure that I think is the wisest procedure, and rather than starting off with a doctrine related to marriage or introduction to that, we need to get into the text first, and we'll go through 
the text of 1 Corinthians 7 and exegete it, come up with our conclusions, and then after we have concluded the chapter, then we'll start putting the principles together as they relate to other key passages from Genesis to Ephesians. We'll do that, some of that on, in, on the way, but at the end we'll put things together and have, we'll, this will comprise sort of a eight or ten lesson, maybe not that many, but at least six or eight lesson mini-series on what the Bible teaches about love, sex, marriage, and divorce. Now, up to this point in 1 Corinthians, that is in the first six chapters, Paul has been rebuking the Corinthians because of various bad attitudes, divisiveness, various uh, licentious attitudes that they have and that they've been demonstrating all because of their arrogance. That is the root problem in Corinth, as it is with all of us, is arrogance. And that is that we are too too often consumed with our own importance. We're consumed with uh, the details of our own lives to the extent that it crowds out everything else. And so we want to spend our time thinking about me, 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 as opposed to other people. And that is the direct opposite of what the Bible teaches in terms of love. And that really forms a foundation for what is going to come up, especially in this chapter, but it is, it, it is the core of everything Paul says in the coming chapters. Now, there's a major uh, distinction between what Paul covers in the first six chapters, which has to do with addressing this basic problem and a strong rebuke from the Apostle Paul and his tone and, and the structure of the remainder of the epistle, chapter 7 through chapter 15. And this is indicated in the text, in the Greek text, by a phrase that is not always clearly uh, translated in the English. In the Greek, you have this phrase, peri-day. Now, this little construction, this little word here, day, is like chi, it's and or now, and it always comes second in a sentence. It's trans- in English, you translate it first, but in, in Greek, it always takes the second position in the sentence. And then this is the preposition peri, which means uh, concerning or about. And this becomes a structural marker. Each time he uses this phrase, he's changing topics in this epistle. And he uses this phrase about five times, uh, five or six times in this epistle. He uses it here in verse 1, now concerning. And the suggestion is that the Corinthians had written him a letter with various questions. They were, there was some disagreement over some things. There's some conflicts in the church. There's some problems that are being generated because of their arrogance. And so they had written to Paul because he was the one who had founded the church. Now, we've already studied that they're divided. They're into various factions in the congregation. They're, some were lined up with Apollos and some with Peter. Others were the more spiritual crowd, thinking, saying they were following Christ. And then there were those who were following Paul. But when it came to getting definitive answers, they all recognized that Paul had an authority over and above some of these others. And so they had written him this an epistle, apparently, that we don't have, asking him certain questions or to resolve certain disputes or disagreements or problems within the congregation. So in 7.1 down through 25, we have the first peri-day section, and that deals with certain issues related to celibacy 
and marriage, not a subject that we would normally put together, but it is a subject that is that is a problem there. I'm not talking about being celibate or being married. I'm talking about celibacy in marriage. That's the problem here. It's not a problem of celibacy before marriage. See, that's a foregone conclusion. You just read a little bit in Scriptures, you begin to realize that uh, sex outside of marriage is not condoned by the Scriptures. So the first thing you have to recognize when you hit 1 Corinthians 7 is that this is not talking about the problem of celibacy before marriage, but the problem of celibacy in marriage. Now, that's got everybody's attention. So that's the problem in 7, 1 through 24, and then there's another Perry Day clause in verse 25 where he addresses certain problems related to those who are unmarried. And that term unmarried, as we'll see, is a term that refers both to those who have never been married and those who have been married and their first marriage has ended either from uh, death or divorce. Then we get into the next section in chapter 8, which has to do with food sacrifice to idols and the whole situation of the weaker brethren. And that's going to be a fun section to study. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, there's another shift. There's another use of peri-day. And chapters 12 through 15 cover issues related to spiritual gifts. And then in 16, uh, 1, there's another shift where the focus is on giving for the need of the saints. So we're going to cover some... Uh, I, that's a fun thing about 1 Corinthians is that even though these are uh, these were problems in the first century church, the more you study what was going on in the first century, the more you realize that very few things have changed in the past 2,000 years. People are still basically the same. Sin natures are basically the same. They have the same trends. And uh, whether you're talking about a Corinthian living in the licentious, permissive, uh, promiscuous society of Corinth in the first century, or you're talking about a 21st century American living in, oh gee, permissive, promiscuous, licentious America, uh, the trends are the same and the situations are the same. So we still have problems with uh, what to do about marriage, and we don't necessarily have a problem with celibacy in marriage, although... At this point, I always remember a story that, that um, Dr. Hendricks told when I was in my first year of seminary. Uh, Dr. Hendricks always taught a Bible study methods class that, that uh, rocked every first-year student at Dallas. It was the first course everybody had to take, and usually it was the first class you hit. And he was a very entertaining uh, professor, and he always punctuated all of his lectures with lots of anecdotes and stories. The one that I think shocked everybody, remember I was in the, uh, the clear baby boom generation in the late um, late 70s when I went to seminary. This was, no, not too late. It was about 76 when I went to seminary. So it was clearly after the so-called sexual revolution and the uh, post-hippie um, generation. And so something like this just seemed foreign to everybody in class. But he told a story about a, uh, when he was one of the first years when he was teaching this would have been in the early 50s, so some of you may remember what things were like in the early 50s. Other of you, others of you just think that's ancient history. And after this story, you're really going to think it's ancient history. But he had a, uh, after he was teaching in class for a while, and had, I, I guess, in one of his subjects, had touched on, because he, he was always real big on teaching classes on family and marriage. I guess in one of his lectures, he touched on the issue of sex, and uh, one of the students came up to him after class and said, you know, Prof, I really need to spend a little time talking to you. I've got a problem. And so Hendricks had him come into the office, and they sat down. And this man was extremely frustrated in more ways than one. 
and he had been married for about six months. And um, he was, he and his wife had both been raised in extremely strict, legalistic uh, Christian homes. And as he sat there and was discussing some of the problems they were having in their marriage, uh, a, a light bulb began to dawn in Hendrick's thinking, and he began to probe a little more in terms of his questions, and he got around to their sex life. When he asked about their sex life, the guy said, well, what exactly do you mean? See, they had never been taught the details of sexual intimacy, and all they were doing is kissing, and so they, he, they had a level of frustration that perhaps few of us can imagine. And so uh, after Hendricks explained uh, the facts of life to this young man, he gave him a different homework assignment from the rest of the class, sent him home, and he didn't have to inquire as to uh, how well the man did the next morning because he showed up in class with an extremely large grin on his face. And so, uh, But th- that seems very foreign to us that somebody could reach that stage of life and not know anything about sex, but that uh, that was a different generation. The problem we have today is that people know too much about sex, and they know about sex uh, too early in life. In fact, uh, some studies have suggested that uh, and indicated that in the 18th, uh, excuse me, in the 19th century, about a hundred. About this study was, I think, its starting point was in the 1880s. That approximately 120 years ago, the average adolescent. Yeah, adolescent male reached sexual maturity about, uh, or reached puberty rather, about the age of uh, 18 or 19. And the average um, female reached sexual ability or puberty about the age of 16 or 17. On the other hand, the average adolescent reached emotional maturity at about the age of 14 or 15. That was 120 years ago. So they reached emotional maturity. Now, why would they reach emotional maturity so early? Because they had, they were growing up in a rural environment on the farm. They were given tremendous amounts of responsibility. In many cases, they were faced with life and death situations on a fairly frequent basis. So they had to assume responsibilities at a fairly early age, and they couldn't make mistakes, and they couldn't be lazy, and they couldn't sit around and watch television all day, and they weren't spoiled, and they weren't growing up in a, in a self-absorbed society. So they reached maturity, emotional maturity, and emotional maturity is usually defined as the ability to postpone gratification more than a day. And uh, they reached emotional maturity about two or three years before they hit puberty. Now kids hit puberty, and that's and the reason there's a difference is because of nutrition, because of physical health, because of uh, improvements of a uh, number of other factors. But the other, the the average uh, adolescent today, male or female, reaches puberty somewhere between the ages of 11 and 13. They reach emotional maturity about 21 or 22. So now, rather than hitting emotional maturity uh, a couple of years before they hit puberty, they hit puberty about 10 years before they hit emotional maturity. So now we have a major problem because they've got all these raging hormones and they don't have the emotional stability to be able to handle it. 
That's why it's important for parents to have open and honest discussions with their kids in this area because they're facing some trials and tribulations and some struggles in this area that probably most of you as adults, if you're over 40, did not face. Things are different. Even in the generation of those who came to maturity in the 60s, there was a closer gap between these, these, between puberty and emotional maturity. One study suggests that people, uh, in the generation X, uh, hit emotional maturity almost five years later than the early baby boomers hit emotional maturity, and they hit, um, emotional maturity a couple of years later than the World War II generation crowd. So you see how things have changed, and now we have a lot of, uh, uh, children running around with adult abilities, but not with adult capacity to handle the situation. Well, we ha- have a similar situation in some ways in Corinth, and that is that, that they came out of an environment that um, where, where sex was treated as uh, just the, fulfilling the natural needs of the body, and it was seen culturally as no different from uh, eating or drinking or fulfilling any other uh, physical needs. So in order to understand what's going on in 1 Corinthians 7, we have to understand something about the dominant ideas in Greek culture at that particular time. And we have studied this a little bit, and that was important to understand the conclusion of the previous chapter because it plays a part there. That is the idea that came up in Greek culture that the material world is actually less significant than the immaterial world. And, see, this has its roots in the philosophy of Plato. Plato looked around and he saw all kinds of particulars. For example, you might have, I'll just write the words up here, you might have a a lazy boy recliner over here, and over here you have a a dining room chair, and over here you have maybe a d- different kind of upholstered chair, but you have all these different chairs, and you have folding metal chairs, all kinds of different chairs, but when we think of the idea chair, chair is a universal concept. So there's the universal up here, where when I speak of chair, we all have the same idea of a chair. In fact, when I say chair, everybody gets a little mental image of a chair, and some of you have a mental image of one kind of chair, some of a different kind of chair, but we all know what chair means. That's what uh, Plato called the idea. And all the different kinds of chairs there are in the world, whether they're lazy boys or uh, dining room chairs or whether they're um, uh, folding metal chairs or upholstered chairs, whatever you might have for a chair, they all represent this universal idea. And in Platonic philosophy, this was where reality existed. And all of these different instances of chairs were simply a shadow of reality. If any of you read The Republic, then you know the illustration he used of going into the cave, and you have the man sitting in the cave, and there's a light in the background. All you see is reflections on the wall. You don't see the thing itself. You just see reflections. And so all the different kinds of chairs there are in the world are simply pale imitations of this universal idea that exists uh, out there in, uh, in reality somewhere, in the realm of the ideal. And so everything in the material world is simply a pale reflection of the ideal, and so it has less significance. Eventually, this developed the idea that everything in the material world was 
was tied to the, the finite and was evil, and everything in the spiritual realm was, was good. Well, the body is down here in the physical world, and the soul is up here in the immaterial world, so there developed this dichotomy. The interesting thing was that in this dichotomy where everything related to the body was evil, one of the ways that you dealt with this was you just had a tremendous amount of sex. That took care of the body's problems, and it didn't have anything to do with the health or well-being of the soul. And this idea also blended with the rise of the uh, fertility cults that institutionalized uh, temple prostitution and ritual prostitution in Greek culture. So anytime you had any kind of uh, sexual needs, you just went down to the local temple and spent some time with the temple prostitute, and that would take care of that, and that didn't have anything to do with any kind of spiritual life or the, the our, our uh, spiritual reality. On the other hand, another influential thought system at that time was that they developed by the, the cynics. The cynics and the Stoics were usually opposed to one another, and the, according to the views of the cynics, there was a, they had an emphasis on asceticism and the idea that virtue was sufficient for happiness. You just needed to be virtuous. See, in any culture, remember that you have to remember the trends of the sin nature to understand anything in life. If you don't understand the sin nature, you're going to be living in an unreal world. Remember the sin nature has trends. One trend is towards asceticism, and the other trend is towards licentiousness and lasciviousness. Now what happens is, just as individuals react, some people have a trend towards asceticism, others have a trend towards licentiousness, and when people who are licentious get around ascetics, they tend to react and go even further into licentiousness, and people who are ascetics, when they get around people who have a trend towards licentiousness, they react the other way and they just get more ascetic, and uh, both of them are operating on different ideas of self-righteousness, because remember, both are products of the sin nature and operate on arrogance. So you can have self-righteousness manifested as either uh, licentiousness or asceticism. And so in reaction to the fertility cults, you had the rise of different ascetic groups, and the cynics were one of them. The cynics were influenced by Socrates uh, in three areas. First of all, they had a disregard for both pleasure and pain. See, the body's really not important in, their, in, in Greek thought. The body is secondary. So pleasure, physical pleasure, physical pain are ultimately the same, sort of a forerunner to the mind science cults like Christian science and uh, the health and wealth gospel that it's been, as it's been perverted by many different groups. All have their roots in this kind of thinking. The second thing they picked up from Socrates was the idea that a virtuous person is better off than a non-virtuous person, but they're grounding that. It's just an emphasis on morality, and that is grounded in a self, their self-righteousness. And then third, the third idea they picked up from Socrates was that the soul is more important than the body. Now, when I use the word cynics, I know what comes into your thinking, and that's because one of the most famous cynics in the ancient world was Diogenes. Now, Diogenes was the one, to refresh your memory, who went around with a lamp looking for an honest person. Now, the way the story goes, he went around with a lamp in broad daylight looking for an honest person. What he was emphasizing was that there were no honest people. 
You couldn't find them. Even with a lamp in broad daylight, you couldn't find an honest person. And that's the idea of cynicism and where we get our English word and concept for cynicism is we just don't trust anybody. So that was that, those ideas were prevalent. You have on the one hand extreme licentiousness. On the other hand, you have this emphasis on asceticism as something that is inherently virtuous. And then behind all of this, you have the idea of a dichotomy between the material world and the immaterial world. Uh, along with this, there was a tremendous debate going on in the first century between cynics and Stoics on the nature of marriage, and, as, and other groups were involved as well. But the Stoics emphasized marriage as something that was inherently good for mankind and provided stability in a nation. They understood it in terms of what we would say call establishment truth. The cynics, on the other hand, thought that people should marry only under certain circumstances. In other words, there was a certain value to asceticism and to not getting married. So all of that was boiling around in the background thinking of the people in the church at Corinth. So we come to chapter 7. Now, chapter 7 is going to address this problem and how this has influenced certain views in Corinth. Now, one thing I want to say before we get into it by way of introduction is that chapter 7 is not Paul's uh, main exposition on the doctrine of marriage. Here he is simply answering questions related to specific situations in Corinth. Now, from what he says, we can extrapolate some principles, but he is not writing a definitive chapter on marriage. And when we get into divorce, the point I want to make here is that that you see everybody building, uh, tending to build doctrines of divorce and remarriage from both 1 Corinthians 7 and from uh, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. And if you, we go back, and we'll see this, when we go back into Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, Jesus is answering a question posed to him by the Pharisees that was specifically related to a theological disagreement between two different theological schools within Pharisaism. And so the point is that the point that I'm making is Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and 1 Corinthians 7 are written in answer to specific questions related to specific situations. None of those uh, discourses are stated to be the uh, a total or overall statement related to marriage and divorce, although there are some important conclusions that we can can draw from that. Now, as an overview of chapter 7, we need to, I think it's important in any kind of exegesis and hermeneutics to begin by having a pretty clear understanding of what an author is writing about. If you misunderstand what somebody's talking about, and you, you, you misunderstand the uh, general subject matter about which they're, they're talking, then you're going to misinterpret the details. And that's why some people have reached, I think, erroneous conclusions when they come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is they assume that Paul is talking about marriage. He's not talking about marriage. Or they think that he's talking about divorce. He's not talking about divorce. Those are secondary subjects. The subject that he is addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is the subject of celibacy and the value of celibacy for the spiritual life. That's the issue in Corinth is the idea of asceticism that refraining from sex is somehow more spiritual than being married and having sex. And that's the problem that has developed here is because there are those in the congregation who are married who are 
imposing celibacy on their marriage, thinking that that's going to make them more spiritual. So the subject of chapter 7 is on celibacy and the role of celibacy in the spiritual life. Paul's main chapter that he where he discusses marriage is in the end of Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5, 20, and on through chapter 6 is where he discusses marriage, and that's his where he presents an extremely positive view of marriage. The other thing that we're going to discover as we go through chapter 7 is that this is one of those passages where there's a tremendous amount of controversy and a tremendous amount of disagreement, and it's one that uh, is... There are several verses in here that are often uh, misunderstood, so it's going to be important to do some clear exegesis and a clear look at the context in order to understand what is going on here. Verse 1 begins, Now concerning, that's our peri-day clause, indicating a change of subject. Notice that at the end of chapter 6, Paul virtually sets up, by way of transition, what he's going to cover in the remainder of this, uh, this epistle. In verse 12, he talks about the principle of all things being lawful to me, uh, and then he relates that to food. That's going to be the subject of chapter 8, is the law of love and the law of liberty. Uh, and the law of sacrifice related to the weaker brother, weaker brethren. And then in verse 14, he talks about how the body is raised up, and that foreshadows his discussion on uh, resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That foreshadows his discussion on the body of Christ and spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 to 14, and then verse 16, do you not know that he is joined to a uh, prostitute is one with her? We discussed the interpretation of that last time, and that re- relates to the problem of sexual licentiousness that is going to be part of the discussion in chapter 7. And then we get to the point that the body has been redeemed, and that's the principle of verses 19 and 20, is that the body, the the physical body, today has value. It is not secondary uh, to the soul. So now he's going to change the subject. He's going to start applying some of these things he said in verses 12 to 20 to specific situations in the church in Corinth. So he says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. So we don't know when they wrote this, but now he's going to change the subject and start applying a lot of the principles from the first six chapters to these particular questions that they have addressed to him. And then we have the phrase translated in the New King James Version, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now this has caused a great deal of concern in terms of uh, interpretation, especially to young men because they does this forbid hugging kissing holding hands what does that mean and of course the legalists can come along and you can just imagine what they do with that particular verse it's good for a man not to touch a woman but what we have to understand and this has become more and more clear from studies of greek literature studies of this especially first corinthians over the last few years it's something that is difficult to prove without a shadow of a doubt, but it is fairly clear from the evidence within the structure of this epistle that many times what Paul is doing is taking some phrase or some rationalization or some slogan that is being repeated by certain groups within the church at Corinth, 
and he he states them. We saw this in the last uh, in our study last week of, of uh, chapter six, twelve through twenty. He takes these statements and he he restates them, and then he uh, as the principle that the Corinthians are stating, and then he straightens them out. And this phrase, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, is not Paul writing a doctrinal mandate. It is what the ascetics, what the anti-sex crowd in, first, in, uh, in the Corinthian church was saying, that it was good for a man not to touch a woman. So we have to understand the significance of this particular phrase. They were arguing that celibacy was a good of intrinsic value. This is the Greek word kalos here, and they were saying that this is a good thing, a good of intrinsic value. It had inherent, um, it had inherent virtue that a man should not touch a woman. You see, problems with sex for pleasure, and God designed sex for pleasure. It was not just designed for procreation, which is the idea you get in some denominations. Problems with sex for pleasure in marriage isn't a result of Puritan influence. It's not the result of, of Victorian influence from the 19th century. It's always been prevalent in human history. There's always those who have the trend towards asceticism who somehow have a problem with sex for pleasure. In fact, in ancient Rome, a very famous uh, Roman poet by the name of Ovid believed that there could be no uh, sexual pleasure between a husband and wife because marriage was a relationship of duty. So if marriage is a relationship of duty, how can you really enjoy sex? And in contrast, what we see in these nine verses at the beginning of chapter 7 is that Paul is in complete contradiction to that human viewpoint thinking, and he is affirming that sexual desire and pleasure have their rightful place in marriage and is encouraging them to give it its rightful place, that there's nothing wrong with sex. God designed sex to be part of marriage and to be a celebration of the love that exists between a man and a woman. Notice, not a man and a man or a woman and a woman, but between a man and a woman in marriage, not outside of marriage. So sex in marriage is to be enjoyed to its fullest extent, for the glory of God. Now, in this statement, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Paul uses the aorist active infinitive of a word touch. Everybody wants to know what this means to touch. And this is just a generic term in Hebrew for various kinds of touching. It's got a rough breathing mark, H-A-P-T-O, the aorist active infinitive. <clears throat> and here would be the infinitive of prohibition. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, this word hopto is used in various different contexts in Scripture. For example, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 3, Jesus touches the lepers when he heals them. It's, that's the kind of touch he's talking about. He just reaches over and touches them. It's interesting to see how the word touch is used in relationship to Jesus' ministry of healing. In fact, as a rabbi, to touch a leper would have rendered him ceremonially unclean, but because he heals them, that is never a factor. Furthermore, in, in Matthew, we find that in all, the, all of the Synoptic Gospels, the woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years touched 
Jesus' cloak and was healed. So this is just a simple touch. He just reaches out and touches his garment. So it is not a uh, an embrace. It's not a uh, grabbing in that context. It's just a, a simple reaching out and touching. Uh, later we discover that Jesus in several instances touches the eyes of the blind and they're healed. And we can imagine that that is a gentle touch. Further, when there's the dead young man, he touches his coffin and raises him from the dead. That, too, would have rendered him unclean. No rabbi would have ever touched a coffin. Furthermore, we see his relationship with Mary Magdalene such that in John 20, verse 17, Mary Magdalene touches him, but here it's more of an embrace, and Jesus says to her, you know, don't continue to hold on to me. And so she has discovered, realized there in the in the garden, when he appeared to her after the resurrection, that this one whom she didn't recognize at first, if you remember the story, he appears to her, she doesn't recognize him. Then when he pronounces her name, she realizes who this person is, and she just grabs him in one big hug, and she doesn't want to let go. And Jesus says, don't cling to me. And that's the idea there. So the point I'm making is that uh, the meaning of hapto is going to vary depending on context. It has uh, a range of meanings, and context is what indicates it. And it had become, in first century Greek, uh, in Koine Greek, an idiom for sexual intimacy as well. So in this slogan, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's not talking about uh, hugging or kissing. It's talking about sexual intimacy. It's not good for a man to be engaged in, in sexual relations uh, with a woman. This was their slogan. And the context, as we'll see in the next couple of verses, indicates that it's within marriage, not outside of marriage. He's, Paul is not talking, or they're not talking about being celibate outside of marriage. As believers, they had understood at least that, that uh, having sex outside of marriage was prohibited by the Word of God. So in verse 2 we read, But because of immoralities, and there we have our word porneia again, which includes the whole realm of, of immorality from sim- simple uh, sex outside of marriage to promiscuity to uh, uh, temple prostitution, bestiality, all of the various uh, perversions that can be thought of from homosexuality to necrophilia. Because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife. Literally, in, in the Scriptures, it's each, but it's a masculine form of the, of the uh, pronoun there. So it's each man is to have, and here we have the use of the word echo, which is also used as a euphemism for uh, sexual involvement in certain contexts. So each man is to have his own wife, and each woman or each wife is to have her own husband. Notice it goes both ways. Now, this was a revolutionary idea in the ancient world. Now, you're going to run into a time somebody who's never paid any attention to the Scripture, and they're going to go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and a couple other places where, where Paul makes statements such as, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, uh, but to learn in silence in 1 Corinthians 14 where he says that women are to learn in silence with all submission. And they're going to say, well, Paul was just reflecting his uh, anti-woman, uh, his misogynist uh, background from being a rabbi and that he had this view of women that was uh, he was against women and this was very clear. 
But this shows that that cannot be true, or Paul's just the most inconsistent person in the world, because in the ancient world, especially in Greece, you still have a very strong patriarchal society where men could do whatever they wanted to do, but women were completely under the legal authority of the man. The man owned the woman's body, but the man could do whatever he wanted to do. And so what Paul says here is the man is to have his own wife and the woman is to have her own husband. It's a two-way road. It's the idea of mutual submission, which is discovered in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, that before it talks about the wife submitting to the husband or the husband loving the wife, the overall command there is we will sub- believers are to submit to one another. That is the mutuality that takes place within the marriage. It is not uh, a drill sergeant to his troops. Some men get the idea that when Scripture says that women are to be obedient to their husbands, that that means the husband can come in and bark orders and the wife, you know, hops to and salutes and does whatever he says uh, whenever he says to do it. And that totally misses the concept of a relationship. See, marriage is a relationship based on mutuality of love, which is always a give-and-take situation. And so Paul introduces this, uh, which was a really new idea for the, for the Greeks. They had uh, never thought of this concept that, that sex was a two-way road between the husband and the wife. So I want to start off as we get into the subject of uh, the biblical view of sex with just some introductory thoughts, about ten points in terms of our introduction on the biblical view of sex and marriage. First point. Marriage is a divine institution established by God for the stability and perpetuation of the human race. Marriage is a divine institution established by God for the stability and perpetuation of the human race. Remember, there are five divine institutions. The first divine institution is human responsibility. In every every divine institution, there is a distinct sphere of authority. The authority over human responsibility is God, because God is the one to whom every human being is ultimately responsible. Man, in, in his fallen condition, has rejected God as his authority and has set himself up as his own authority, but ultimately he will be accountable to God. Second divine institution. The second divine institution is marriage. And in marriage, God has established an authority there, and that is the husband. The husband is the authority, and that means that he is the leader in the home. Now, I like to emphasize the concept of leadership over against authority, because too often people get a screwed-up idea of what authority means. Authority does not necessarily mean that you tell your wife how to do everything and that you're in charge. It has to do with leadership, and leadership, good leadership, always leads by example. And we see this in the cross. That's If you're going to understand anything about love, husbands, and remember the Scripture says husbands are to love your wives as Christ loved the church, Leadership begins with an example, and the example of our leadership is the example of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's where it begins. If you're going to understand anything about what it means to love your wife, you have to start with the cross. 
So every marriage has a leader and has an authority, and that's the husband. He is to lead in the same way that Christ functions as a leader. And remember you two things. He, his death on the cross is a sacrifice, and it is a gift. He, he sacrifices, it's a gift, and it's based on the idea of being a servant. So those three ideas are fundamental to the concept of love, and when we get to that point where we talk about husbands loving your wives, um, probably some of you guys are going to want to take a vacation that week. Third divine institution is the family. Inside the family, you have an authority structure, and the parents are the authority structure, but that authority, once again, is to emphasize leadership. As parents, you are the source of information to your children as to how to live life successfully. That means you are to be involved in training them as to how to think, how to make decisions, so that when they uh, reach maturity and leave your home, they will be able to live successfully because of the training that you have provided them inside the home. This is not simply uh, telling them what to do, but demonstrating how they are to do it through your example. So leadership through example. Fourth divine institution is human government. Now, you've been taught in the past that there were only four divine institutions, but I've separated five because they were actually established about 300 years apart. Uh, human government was established in Genesis chapter 9 at the end of the flood when God authorized capital punishment, and by inference, all other forms of judicial punishment uh, at, in the Noahic Covenant. The fifth divine institution, which is the institution of nations, or national distinction, occurs in Genesis chapter uh, 10 with the Tower of Babel. And when God distinguishes the human race or separates them into various language groups, that's when you have the establishment of nations. Now, human government, you have final authority is in terms of whatever your legal system is, your executive branch, your constitution, monarchy, whatever the form of government is. And in nations, ultimately, all nations are answerable to God, and they will be held accountable to God uh, in future judgment at the end of the tribulation and again at the end of the millennial kingdom. So these are the five divine institutions, and we're focused now on divine institution number two. That means that the rules for marriage as a divine institution for the human race are the same, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, because it's a divine institution for all people. The next thing we have to understand is in the church age, this is stepped up a notch for believers with the institution of Christian marriage. Ephesians chapter 5 gives the principles for Christian marriage, and the guidelines for Christian marriage are higher than they are for the divine institution of marriage, which is for believer and unbeliever. And the reason for that is that Christian marriage is an analogy of the union between Jesus Christ and the church. So that means that more is expected of a male believer who is a husband and a female believer who is a wife than unbelieving husbands and unbelieving wives. There is a higher standard, and that standard has to do 
with the love that is demanded of every single believer. See, it's not just that you're singled out, but that if you're married, you have to apply the principle of John 13, 34, and 35 in a way that a single person does not have to apply it. And it's tougher sometimes to apply the principle of loving one another as Christ loved the church when you have to live with that person and you have to put up with their sin nature day in and day out. That's why marriage is one of the greatest arenas of sanctification in life. Because you can't get away, husbands, you know this, you can't get away with, uh, you may pull the wool over the pastor's eyes or somebody else's eyes. If you teach in some Sunday school class or you're witnessing to somebody, you may be able to uh, convince them that you have some level of spiritual maturity. But no matter how well you may think you have your wife fooled, she knows exactly how mature or immature you are as a believer. And the same thing goes for you wives. Your husband, you know, when you're living together 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you can't fool the other person, not unless they're just extremely naive. So in terms of the first point, we have to recognize that marriage is a divine institution, but in the church age, if you're a believer, there is a Christian institution of marriage that has a higher standard than the divine institution of marriage. Second point, marriage was established before the fall. Now, this is an important point. A lot of people think that marriage, well, that's just something that God established so that uh, he can uh, bring stability into the human race and control things. No, marriage was established before the fall, before there was sin. That means that it has to do with there's a constitutional makeup in the human race and the human being which demands this kind of relationship. That's why God said it is not good for the man to be alone. And he says it's not good for the man to be alone, so he creates the woman as a helper or assistant for him, and an assistant is useless without someone to assist. And so the implication is that male and female are created in order to, in the ideal situation, function together as a team. Man was not created to function in isolation but in terms of partnership. Now, we have all kinds of problems that have resulted because of sin, but I'm not talking about the post-fall environment. I'm talking about the pre-fall environment, which means that marriage is uh, an inherently ideal situation, and there, it's not designed in order to circumvent or to resolve some problems that relate because of sin. Third point. Marriage is related to the concept of the image of God. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God said, Let us create man in our, in our image, male and female. He created them. And so it's not that they, one has, male has part of the image and female has part of the image, and when you put them together, you get a whole image. That's not the point. As we studied before, the image of God has to do with that immaterial makeup of man in terms of his soul and his spirit terms of his self-consciousness, he has God-consciousness, at least before the fall in the image of God. When he has a human spirit, he had God-consciousness. When he, in his mentality, he could think as God taught him to think. In his, in his conscience, he had divine norms and standards. Uh, in his um, self-consciousness, mentality, and his volition, he uh, made decisions in light of God's information. After the fall, all of that gets torn apart. But before the fall, marriage is designed so that together they can fulfill the mandate of God 
in terms of their life. That means that it, when you come to the New Testament, as we'll see, that it's only as you are being sanctified and maturing as a believer that that function of the image begins to be recovered and restored in Christian marriage. Christian marriage allows two believers to begin to fulfill the original intent and design of mankind before the fall. It's only after they are both regenerate and are growing and maturing as believers that as they grow and mature together, they can begin to fulfill the original function God designed, which makes marriage part of ministry. It is part of your ministry and part of your testimony in the angelic conflict. Point number four. Sexual enjoyment was part of marriage from the inception before there was a fall. Sexual enjoyment was a part of marriage from the inception and before the fall. Compare Genesis 24 with Ephesians 5.31. In Genesis 2.24, we have a very familiar statement where we read, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now hold your place in 1 Corinthians 7, and let's go back. I want to make a little point here that flies right past most biblical, uh, most expositors and most people who read the text here, to Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24 is in a context. Let's pick up the context. In previous verses, God had set out, Abra- uh, God set out Adam, and was bringing all of the all of the animals before Adam to name them. One of the things he's demonstrating to Adam is that there are male and female of all the different animals. There are two. And so Adam is going to come to a realization that he is alone, that there is no, no other creature that is comparable to him. And so he's going to recognize that he is in isolation. So he names all the all the animals in verse 20. And that concludes with the statement, but for Adam there was not found a helper, or that is an assistant, comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he fashioned into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, now notice who's speaking here, Adam says this, referring to the woman, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, actually Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. So he names her Isha at that particular point in time. Then there's a statement, therefore. Now who's speaking in verse 24? It's not Adam. Adam's not going to say, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, because he doesn't know what a father and mother is yet. Hey, is God speaking in verse 24? No, God's not speaking in verse 24. Who's speaking in verse 24? Moses is speaking in verse 24. Moses is writing Genesis as the preamble to the Pentateuch. And remember, the function of Genesis is to explain to the Jews, while they're on the plains of Moab getting ready to go into the land of Israel, that God has a plan as a unique plan for the nation Israel. And that starts with the call of Abraham. But, of course, if you start with Abraham, the question is going to be, well, where did Abraham come from? Well, have you ever noticed there are 50 chapters in Genesis, and only the first 11 chapters precede Abraham? 12 through 50 deal with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So not much information is given in 
the first 11 chapters is just a kind of a skeletal summary of all the history up to Abraham to show why God had to call out a special people. But throughout Genesis, you see these editorial comments under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by Moses where he takes certain things that happen and he applies the principle to his audience, which are the Jews on the plains of Moab. And so what he's done is he goes through creation, he goes through the creation of the, of the woman, and then he stops and he turns to his audience and he says, this is why, because of the fact that the man and the woman are now a team, this is why a man and a woman are to leave their parents and become one flesh. Is because God has designed the marriage union as the core union, not the extended family. See, some cultures come along and they put a lot of emphasis on the extended family and you get mothers-in-law and fathers-in-law. You know, I, I, I tell you, I've heard some strange stories since I've been up here about some mothers-in-law and fathers-in-law who expect their kids to always be over for Sunday dinner. Or See, you're to leave and cleave. That means if you have to, you have to tell your parents, I have a new family. When I married this man or this woman, I started a new family. I'll come over to your family on occasion when I deem it necessary. But if you think you're going to still dictate to me as your child, you're completely wrong. And what you're going to do is if you continue to treat me like I'm your child, you are going to set my current marriage and family up for failure. It comes out of pure, raw paganism. Some of you parents need to pay attention to this. Once your kid gets married, it's hasta la vista, baby. They're out of there. And you don't have a right to demand or expect them to ever say a word to you for the rest of your life. You don't have that right. They're out of there. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in Scripture, this Scripture is telling you that they have left. They're gone. You do not have that right. You can't put them on a guilt trip. You can't call them up and say, I never hear from you anymore. You never call. You can't say, well, our whole family, all your brothers and sisters came over for a Sunday dinner. And where were you? You can't start manipulating them by not talking to them. If they have any sense and you start doing that, they'll just say, well, thank God, I'm not going to hear from them anymore. And they'll move on. See, it's the principle of leaving. More marriages are ruined by parents who can't cut the apron strings when that child gets married and by more kids who can't cut the apron strings to their parents. See, it works both ways. Not only do you have parents who are demanding that the kids maintain that same kind of relationship they had enjoyed for 20, 22, 24, 30 years. But you have kids who can't realize they need to grow up and they have now established an independent, autonomous family unit that is no longer tied to the parents. Now, if you can continue to have a good relationship and enjoy fellowship together as adults, that's great. But... As a parent, you have no no legitimate expectation of any relationship with those kids after they're married. And as kids, if you want to destroy your marriage, you just keep running to mom or dad as an authority figure or keep turning to them. One of the worst things you can say is, well, my mother always cooked it this way. Or, well, my dad always did it this way. You know, if you just want to take out a pistol and shoot the other person in terms of destroying the marriage, I'm using that metaphorically, not actually, then just do that. You know, go back and, and pull up how your parents did it or how their parents did it or something like that. So 
Moses is making a particular point here. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And the word here for joined is dabak, which means to join two things together. It's used for gluing things together. It's joint. It's used for just uh, tying things together. And it's, it, it came to be used as a, a euphemistic term for, for sexual intimacy. And that's how it is uh, interpreted by God the Holy Spirit when Paul quotes it in Ephesians 5.31 and some other passages as well in the New Testament, where in the Greek, the, the word dabak is translated with the Greek word proskalao. And proskalao was another euphemism in Greek for sexual intimacy in marriage. So Genesis 2.24 states, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and have sexual intimacy with his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And that shows part of the role of sex in marriage is it develops soul intimacy. It develops soul intimacy. And that leads to point number five. Sexual intimacy is an important element of the marriage union because it develops and enhances soul intimacy. Notice, soul intimacy, though, precedes sexual intimacy. And if there's not soul intimacy there, and husbands, remember, your wife is a responder, so if she's in reaction to you because of failures on your part, then you're not going to run home today and say, see, the pastor said we need to have sexual intimacy. That, you're going to get the wrong response. See, sexual intimacy is a result of soul intimacy, and who takes leadership, responsibility, and soul intimacy? It's the husband. Because remember, your wife, we have, we have, we'll develop this when I come back, Women were created with a soul designed to respond. And they are either going to respond or react to you. When you're in failure, they're going to react. When you're uh, successful, when you're right with the Lord, they're going to respond. And when you're uh, right in terms of your relationship, they're going to, to respond. But you don't want a woman reacting to you. And what, what happens once you start having sex while you're in reaction is just it becomes uh, a pleasure-seeking device that emphasizes each individual rather than the team. And sex is designed to promote the team and to develop that soul intimacy that is already established. Now, I've only gotten through five points of ten, so you'll have to come back in two weeks. Dan's going to be here next week. He doesn't know anything about this. I had to put that in there because he'll hear the tape. And we'll come back in two weeks and we'll finish this. And this is just by way of introduction to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to realize that your word addresses every issue in life and even our most intimate relationships. Father, we pray that as we study these things that, that each of us will have the objectivity and the honesty and the courage to face what the Holy Spirit is applying in each of our lives, that we might be willing to, under the spotlight of your word, take a hard look at our own attitudes and our own relationships in our marriages and in our families, that we might have those relationships renovated on the basis of Bible doctrine. Father, we know that all this starts only because of what Christ did on the cross. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Salvation is not based on who you are or what you've done. 
what you haven't done. It's not based on ritual. It's not based on religious activity. It's based on the work of Christ on the cross. He paid the penalty for every one of your sins. And therefore, in order to have eternal life, what you have to decide is whether or not you're going to accept that free gift. The issue is trust, belief. Whether or not you're going to trust that Christ did it all, whether or not you're going to believe the Scriptures that Jesus paid the price, or whether or not you're going to trust in your own efforts. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, Father, we just pray that you would help us to apply the things we have studied today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.